Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Jennifer London. London is the author of American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and The 19th Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life. Her writing has been selected for a Pushcart Prize, listed as notable in Best American Essays, and supported by grants from the Maine Arts Commission, the Money for Women Barbara Deming Memorial Fund, and the Canada Council for the Arts. Her essays have been published in Creative Nonfiction, Orion, River Teeth, Diagram, Long Reads, and other journals. She has received fellowships from Yado, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, Hunix Artist Residency, Hedgebrook, Monson Arts, and the Dora Mar Housen South of France, and was the 2016 recipient of the Breadloaf Rona Jaffe Foundation Scholarship in Nonfiction. A licensed clinical social worker and former therapist, she provides individual and group supervision to other therapists and has also taught social work online for Simmons University and the University of New England. In 2012, she was named Maine's Social Worker of the Year for her campaign to prevent cuts to Maine's Medicaid program. She and her husband live in a little house in Portland, Maine, where they keep several backyard chickens, two cats, and some gloriously untamed gardens. Welcome, London. Thank you, Ronit. It's so, I'm so excited to be here. I'm so happy that you're here, and we have a lot cut out for us in this interview. We have so much to dig into. So let's begin by having you share a bit about American Breakdown for listeners who are new to your book. Okay. So the seed for American Breakdown was planted in, in 1994 when I got my hands on a used copy of the biography of Alice James by Jean Strauss. And I'd heard of Alice... I knew that she suffered from an illness that left her bedridden. And I myself had been sick for five years with um, what was then called chronic fatigue syndrome and what we now call myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome or ME-CFS. And I bought that book and I read it and I felt like I found my soul sister. And it helped me feel not lonely for the first time in my, the suffering that I was going through because of the illness, which was like very maligned at Mm -hmm. that time and still is, but less so, and dismissed by doctors and others, not by people who loved me, but they were having a hard time understanding it. And Alice knew it in her body. And Jean Strauss did a great job of portraying that. And the name of the illness that Alice had was neurasthenia. And I got curious about whether neurasthenia and chronic fatigue syndrome and the other illness for me that developed out of that was multiple chemical sensitivity, if they might all be maybe the same thing or Mm -hmm. connected. Mm -hmm. And so I began doing research in 2001 when I was finishing my master's in social work. And that, and I found that at that time, just a handful of research articles were connecting neurasthenia and chronic fatigue syndrome. But now you'll see it in books about these illnesses quite Mm -hmm. often. And I knew that I wanted to write a book that helped destigmatize chronic fatigue syndrome. That was the most important 
thing to me. And at first, I didn't even want to put me in it. I just wanted to write a very authoritative uh, book about MECFS. But very quickly, I realized that wasn't going to work the way I wanted it to and that I would need to include memoir. And at the time, I thought that memoir was, I mean, I had been living with my illness since 1989 and the symptoms bored the hell out of me. I couldn't imagine anybody wanting to read about this illness. But a friend had encouraged me to include memoir. And so I just had to figure out how to make writing about this illness that was boring to me interesting to readers. And mm. and then part of what happened as I was continuing to research is like people who love to research know what it's like to go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> and <laughs> my rabbit hole led me to this bigger thing as I was trying to figure out the connections between my illness and this illness from the 19th century. And I'm sorry, I didn't say Alice James was the sister of the writer Henry James and the psychologist mm -hmm. William James. Mm -hmm. So she lived in a family with lots of brains and wit. And mm -hmm. she had it too, but because she was a woman and then because she was sick, she didn't get to have as much voice as those two brothers. So as I began to research, I began to see important things about that connected the 19th century and now about how industrial capitalism is Im imp impacting our health. Mm -hmm. And so I began, to, I sort of went into deep research about those things. And I particularly wrote about the effects of stress in America and the effects, the problems in our healthcare system and also chemicals in our that we bring into our domestic environments like shampoo and nail polish and stuff that we think the government is keeping us safe when it's actually not because um, big corporations have a lot of power in our government because of money. Mm -hmm. And you know, what's it's so interesting to me because I love that you shared you didn't want originally to include memoir partially, and I totally understand this absolutely that you thought it would be maybe boring because you had been living with the situation why would anyone want to read about this but also I want to really highlight that you used the word authoritative that you felt you wanted to write a quote authoritative book and so it would need to not have you inserted in it is that accurate yeah and so I that's a great question because that leads to what I ended up doing which is braiding memoir with researched passages and I found that that's that's sort of my superpower like I don't think in a linear way I've never been good at, at thinking in a linear way so first of all when I first started studying writing in college that was 1986 or 7 and you had two choices for genre and they were mm -hmm. fiction and poetry creative nonfiction wasn't even a thing mm-hmm and so I would try to write fiction, but A, it wasn't ever fiction. It was all my own story. <laughs> and B, I, could, I felt like my flaw was that I couldn't write a narrative story. I didn't know how to just smoothly write a narrative, and it felt like a flaw. Mm -hmm. And then all these years later, when I started reading uh, magazines like Creative Nonfiction and reading lyric essays and seeing the ways in creative nonfiction that people do not have to write in a linear way. 
and all the possibilities that can happen and all the truths that, that can be reflected in a more fragmented kind of writing sort of opened me up to knowing a different way to write this book. And mm -hmm. it turns out like that's, since I'm not good at a linear narrative, it's, it's what I'm good at and I love doing it. I love finding the connections between like this part of my memoir and this part of the story that I want to tell in my researched parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, the, I know we're going to talk about this as well, but that idea of how much material, because your book is so well-researched and it is so multifaceted. And I, as a writer, was reading it and thought, how did she organize this? How <laughs> did she keep track of everything? And actually, before before I want to actually start at the beginning, which is this question I have about the very first intro one of the first introductions so on page four I sent you that yeah. little tiny intro I was hoping you could read from this section because I want to talk about the way your book begins okay for me the garden was something to be contended with when I should have been weeding it taming it saving it from itself instead I lay in bed in the cool of the oscillating fan reading about my dead bed comrade Alice James in Alice, I met my Victorian counterpart, my kindred spirit, and somehow reading about her, bright, witty, proud, and stuck, I began coming unstuck. Why was Alice sick? Why was I? Great. So this is like, I was like, yes, <laughs> when I was reading it. And so, okay, so this is the question in, in this, uh, you know, the structure of our books and where to begin is something that can addle writers. And until I figured it out for my own book, I really was floundering. For me, I just needed the container. That's kind of how I work. Right. How can you share how you came to know that this was the way you wanted to start the book? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for sending me the questions last night because I <laughs> dug around and I found the very first thing that I wrote for this book. And I was amazed at how much hasn't been changed. Ah, um, but there's an important piece. So I knew that I wanted to start the book by writing about this relationship between Alice James and me. It's like a one-way relationship, I guess, but it, <laughs> it feels like a two-way, like, it just feels like she's a presence in my life. Mm. And so I knew that was like the key and where I wanted to start. And so I wrote it, but as I said, like, I wanted, you know... I'd had in my mind I would write this like authoritative thing about chronic fatigue syndrome. And uh, when I, I, I gave the first passage to a writer friend to look at, and she was like, London, it's a, it's a little dry. Um, and she <laughs> taught me, like, there are things that I didn't finish. My bachelor's I, is in English, but I, I didn't, uh, I changed schools and there wasn't a creative writing program and my master's in social work. So I didn't get the training that some people get in the intensive way that some people get. I learned it as I went. And so this is the friend who taught me of the importance of visual imagery mm -hmm. and that it was dry without it. And mm -hmm. so I remember after she met with me and talked about it, lying in my bed and thinking, well, what is an image that encompasses my memories of that time and my feelings about that time and the, and the image of the garden is what came to me. And 
I just love how, like, if you just stop and listen to your body, you don't even have to know rationally why something is right. You should just write it down anyway. If it's not right, you can figure that out later. Um, but it was so right. And it, um, I, I love it. Yes. And also what I noticed about it was something that I learned back in my master's program when I was studying memoir and my teacher, who I bring up a lot on this show, um, Deborah Gwartney, had told me that the beginning of my memoir is going to help show the reader how to read my book and what to look for. And I'm paraphrasing. So yes. what I love about what you did here is I you basically primed me as a reader to understand what the connection is, how you came, even in these early sentences, how you came to need to look at your your situation and Alice's as um, connected and where you were and the urgency of it, right? Like you're basically, you know, there isn't a big plop, plop of research in here, which is good. Like you mm-hmm. don't start with that, although you could. You certainly could start with some confounding number, you know, to get everyone's attention. Right. But what I loved about this is you're basically showing the reader right from the beginning, this is why this matters and this is how you should understand I'm going to approach this. And I think it's so smart. Thank you. I have to say that um, the the very opening passage, which is not this one, that came in at the very at the very end of this whole multi-decade process. When my editor, he, well, he was helping me cut fifteen thousand words or something. Thank God. <laughs> I mean, thank God he was helping me because I couldn't have done it. Sure. And yeah. He actually had like he loves the James family. And so he had familiarity with them. And he asked me, he suggested that I write an opening scene that has Alice swimming. And I was Mm. like, but I don't even know that Alice did swim. And I don't Mm. write things from conjecture. And and he like pointed me to the page in the biography. And I was like, oh, she did swim. And then (laughs) I thought about it more. And I was like, so the thing your teacher said, I mean, I remembered... When I had my the opening that some of which you've read in high school English, our teacher was like, you see how in this paragraph, everything in this opening paragraph tells you everything that's going to unfold in the book. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I wasn't doing that. But when I added that bit about Alice swimming, which sort of joins with the final scene that has me swimming, I felt like I sort of metaphorically hit on all the, mm-hmm. not all of the themes of the book, but enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think people, no matter how nonlinear linear we get, no matter how much something is braided, I think I I personally think humans do have that need for some type of pattern making and you know some type of not bookends but sort of a resonance that circles back and and you revisit. And so I think that's that's what you did there. Now moving moving towards the actual diagnosis. I didn't know too much about CFS before I read your book. I'm sorry to say that I also was, you know, misunderstanding what the condition was. I was uninformed. Even the name I got wrong. And so I pulled this passage that we talked about out, and I feel like it especially illuminated the nature of the disease. And I was hoping you could read it if you have it there. I do. And I just want to appreciate you being sort of open about the fact that you didn't really know about the disease. And I mean, it got a lot of press in 89, which was when I first got sick, um, because it was sort of this 
it appeared to be this new disease and it's very controversial, but it's sort of slid into the background, even though there are millions of people in America suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. And it's, it's very, it's just a devastating disease and it's now been validated by science. So it's validated on government websites as a real disease, but that information is slow to get to people. And so people, I mean, even people with all good intentions, when you tell them you have chronic fatigue syndrome, will say, oh, I get tired too. You know, life mm -hmm. is so stressful, right? And mm -hmm. this kind of fatigue is like a whole other level, mm -hmm. um, particularly mm -hmm. um, in acute moments. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I, that was why um, I went into some research about what we know about chronic fatigue syndrome at this point. And um, I'm reminding myself to call it MECFS because, and this is in the book too, because the, uh, the name chronic fatigue syndrome was given in like 1988 by researchers who didn't really believe it was a real thing. Accumulating research indicates, for instance, that something may be awry in the autonomic nervous system of people with chronic, with chronic fatigue syndrome. And by the way, I say chronic fatigue syndrome in the book until the point where it started becoming MECFS. Yes. Um, known as that. The autonomic nervous system is the part of the brain, spinal cord, and peripheral nerves that controls vital functions such as heart rate, blood pressure, body temperature, sweating, and breathing rate. Studies suggest that the sympathetic nervous system, the fight-or-flight branch of the autonomic nervous system, may be overactivated, and the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest branch, may be underactivated. For people with CFS, this can mean that even when they're at rest, their fight or flight system is switched on. Their bodies are never able to achieve true rest. This is certainly what I felt like in the earliest, most devastating months of my illness. Even when I was lying down, I could feel the fatigue coursing through my body. It's like the fatigue itself was toiling. Thank you. This is one of the very first, I mean, you do it again and again where I can really understand and, and or I try to understand. I, I know I can never fully understand, but where I get a, a better sense of, of what this is and what it looks like, that, that feeling of, I mean, immobility and not even being able to hold a book up. And yeah. I was wondering when you were writing the book, uh, how how did you balance this? I would imagine you wanted to educate people so much. And so, you know, how how was it? Like, how big of a role did the drive to educate people who haven't experienced the condition play in your approach? I want to answer that question. But before I do, I just want to go back to the passage that I just read, because just a couple of days ago, I was talking with a friend of mine who has been dealing with long COVID for years. Uh, now and so has her husband and as we were talking uh, basically this paragraph that I just read to you describes their experience and so even Anthony Fauci has made connections between long COVID and MECFS there may be some places that there are different but there's also some a lot of people who are dealing with long COVID now who are dealing with many of the same experiences of as people like me with MECFS and um, I am appreciative knowing mm -hmm. that the MECFS community is sort of rallying to help them um, and, mm -hmm. and that the long COVID community is rallying to get funding for research so that um, they can get treatment that actually works. So I just felt like that was an important thing to say. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much did you feel like you wanted to educate people and, and how did you, did you, was, were you able to turn that need off as you wrote? <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. The fire under my ass for writing this book <laughs> was the first doctor that I had here. So I had moved to the United States from Canada where I had like health insurance and a good doctor. I moved here, got sick with this mysterious fatigue just a few months, like three months or something after I moved here, didn't have a doctor, didn't have insurance. And the doctor that I found um, was dismissive of my experience and ultimately told me I was just depressed and the best thing for me would be to just go back to work, even though I was completely incapable of doing that Mm. and refused to sign forms so that I could get welfare, which like could have, I mean, there's a power that doctors have and that's a pretty significant power. Luckily I was able to find another doctor who was able to sign those forms. So anyway, I say that to say, like, I felt so dehumanized by that doctor and such. I was traumatized by the whole experience. I kept going back to her much longer than I should have because I was young and didn't know better. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least it provided me this fire to to try to set the record straight. Yeah. And um, so the drive. That's what pushed me through the whole thing, I think, is that fire. Mm-hmm. But since then. And, you know, I really want to get this book into the hands of doctors. That's one of my dreams. I want to change the culture of medicine in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's my macro vision. Mm-hmm. But I want to tell you a story of my book's narrator. So the, the, um, the audio book's narrator. She, I, they had sent me four, um, four different people to listen to. And I'm actually pretty, I'm, I often don't like a lot of audiobook readers because they sound too enunciated and not as authentic as I would like, or especially as I would like my book to sound. Mm. But when I hit play on the first one that I heard, I was like, oh my God, this is the one I want her. And um, I, I listened to the others. I didn't want them. They said, well, we hope we can get her. And they did. And then she found me on Instagram and I told her how happy I was that I got her to be the voice of this book. And she told me, and she's given me permission to tell the story that reading my book felt to her, she thought, perhaps like the effect of reading the Alice James biography had on me. She has her own complex, not fully understood illness that's often dismissed. And she finally felt like she had somebody else who got it and who was speaking for her. I think that's what I would say. And I was just like, oh my God, like, this is like the best message ever. Like I never, I had forgotten something really important. Like, I don't want to just touch the macro and change, you know, the culture, which is a hard, slow thing to do. And you don't do it alone, Mm -hmm. but to have a magic moment for a reader to provide them anything close to what the Alice James biography did for me is, is like, that's amazing. I'm just, mm-hmm. of course mm-hmm. I want to do that. That's so important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And I was thinking about that as you started to tell that story that even on this very initial level, 
you have already affected someone deeply, right? The book yeah. isn't even in the world. And yeah. the people, the early readers, and even the audiobook narrator is finding comfort and solace there, right? Now, I, I want to talk about the original title, the name given to this syndrome. And I have this little quote here, which this is, I mean, there is so much to learn in your book. But this is the quote I, I pulled. Holmes settled on chronic fatigue syndrome, but that name, according to Johnson, cast the illness's victims in the role the role of, quote, shirkers who chose to defy the nation's Protestant work ethic, end quote. It is, she argues, a name that sets up CFS sufferers for aspersions and disregard. Quote, if diseases were named after symptoms, she notes, leukemia too might well be called chronic fatigue syndrome and diabetes chronic thirst syndrome. And this is just, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And so I felt so frustrated and aggravated and angry with the state of medicine or at least the medical establishment when it comes to this this disease and I wonder you know as you were writing this book and you're gathering all this data and writing so much and so deeply about what you experienced and what's going on in this country what the effect was on your body you know what is it like to live and breathe the subject even more because you're trying to become you're becoming an advocate what is it like for your own health in that regard thank you for that question and first i just want to say that the johnson referred to with that amazing quote about shirkers and other uh leukemia could be called chronic fatigue syndrome that was hillary johnson and she wrote an amazing and she really researched um she found stuff nobody else had found that we wouldn't have if she hadn't done it so her book is osler's web and i learned so much in in it and i'll say that at the time that I was writing this book, I was also a therapist and a lot of my clients were trauma survivors. And I loved being a therapist and I loved my clients. I was sort of dealing with like this really hard stuff on both sides in both places where I was putting most of my attention in my work as a therapist and my work writing on this book. I was only able to write the book on weekends or then I found a way to pack all my clients into three weeks and then take a week so I could get some consistent writing time. Mm. But I feel like at the time, I think that that the fire under the ass thing, <laughs> it's invigorating. It's like, I'm turning the tables of power. I have something to say, and I'm going to get it out there into the world so that other people can't just dismiss and fail to treat people like me. I guess that's like a mission, right? It's a mission mm -hmm. statement. And mm -hmm. when you're, I feel like when you're driven by that, it, it can take you a long way. And it did. But I will also say that by the end, I was so, so done. Hmm. Just so tired. Just em emotionally, I couldn't even look at the book again, which is not uncommon. I mean, part of what my work was when I was doing my work as a therapist was finding ways to provide self-care so that I could be more resilient. And mm -hmm. so I learned a lot of ways to do that. One of the things was swimming. And what I've realized is that my second book is going to be about the river where I swim in the summer. And it's basically my healing book. It's like a book that I feel like I can write that will help me recover from the hard work I don't know. There's something empowering about finding statistics that really say 
the truth about something you know in your body. And so there's something depressing just about living in this country right now where I think we all feel disempowered and we all feel like there's no hope. Though I did find ways to be hopeful at the end of the book. But anyway, my next book is going to be about swimming in the river, which I hope I believe will help me heal and recover from the hard emotional and intellectual labor of writing this American breakdown. But I also hope it will help others get some moments of healing from just living in this country, doing what we do. I ha I don't know if I'd heard the term grind, grind culture, but that's like the perfect <laughs> term for what we're in. Mm -hmm. I know it, it, it is. And, um, I, I feel like sometimes you don't even notice it, right? We're like the, the frog in the pot of water. You just don't even notice it. You, you would not even realize exactly how uh, ramped up you are at all times and, and struggling and tense. And that's just, the, you know, again, like just a very mild version of what you and others who are dealing with this kind of debilitating disease experience and, and the accompanying economic effects of that. Of course. And I realized, I, I kept thinking, what, where's, how is she surviving? You know, I, I know that you were on welfare and I know that your parents sent you some money at times, a little bit of money, but I just thought the fear and the worry for your future then also grinds you. Yes. And it just, I don't know how anyone picks themselves up. Yeah, I was I was um, ultimately able to, after three times, I was able to win a social security case. Um, so that gave me some money, but it was not, wasn't a left to live on. But they do allow you to work to a certain point. You can only make a certain amount of income or work, and work a certain number of hours. Mm -hmm. And so even that kept me basically in poverty. And I, would, I never knew exactly how much of an impact that had on my body until those brief moments when I'd have money and I'd be like, oh my God, my whole body feels more relaxed. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and the fact is that people who um, are living in the lower economic strata do get hit hardest with um, chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So the so the term yuppie flu, which was what the the disparaging term that was used for chronic fatigue syndrome back when I first got sick, is actually false. Right, right. Which you which you basically debunk in the book as well. Mm -hmm. Can you even like quantify how long it took you to write this book? I mean, is that even a useful question? Yes, I kind of love it because I started researching it in 2001 when I was still studying, finishing up my master's in social work. And I, I, I researched for six or seven years where I was like sort of, as I said, going down the rabbit hole, spreading and spreading my stuff. And research was something I could do in bed. Mm -hmm. um, so I could feel like that I was doing something even though I was barely doing anything physically. Then after six or seven years, I was like, okay, I'm ready to, I know enough I have some expertise now. I feel confident. It's time for me to start writing. So that was 2007 is when I started writing the book. And then I didn't finish it till last, I don't know, December or something. Mm. December 2022. So it was a long haul. And part of that was because I was working. Um, so for a while, I was only able to write on weekends. And or later when I was able to write one week of the month but also because it required so much research. I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't know. I knew, I knew my story. Mm -hmm. And I knew Alice's from reading the book. 
but all the other stuff I might have had intuitions or some paper might have led me there but I had to learn all that stuff and I had to learn it well enough to, to write yes. it and make it a make sense and make it be be, be accurate yeah, and I'm thinking about all of the writers who have books in progress who are about to start submitting to agents who are listening. And I know I'm asking for all of them right now uh, how you went about getting your book deal. That is a great question, too. Maybe this is an overstatement, but I feel like it's impossible to be a working published writer if you're not able to take the hits and if you're not able to be confident in your work and if you're not able to keep doing it anyway even even when you get a rejection mm. and um, I'm really fortunate that I was well supported as a child and a teen by my parents and by uh, writing mentors in my high school and that sort of, sort of really gave me the confidence to just take the hit and then just keep going. I wrote my first book proposal like I probably very I had probably been maybe started the book and then I bumped into a, a writer in, at a park and he's like, oh, you got to write a book proposal. You should do that first. And um, it took me like a year to write the first book proposal because it was quite detailed and it took a lot of time. Oh, yes. Anyone who's tried to write one, I mean, <laughs> me included, we all know. Yes. Good. Okay. Thank you. I mean, you. isn't it like I remember thinking I wanted to write a novel next just so I don't have to do a proposal. Yeah. It's like <laughs> I could just be writing the book, but I did that. <laughs> I sent it around to maybe eight people at a certain point and they all turned it down. Um, I revised it. I waited a few years and probably had improved my sample chapters and sent it around again to about the same number of people. They all turned it down and then waited a few years, kept going and then sent it out to maybe 10 people and one person said yes. <laughs> and that mm -hmm. was Mackenzie Brady Watson. And I am so fortunate to have her. She's been amazing. And the reason that I heard about her is from a Facebook group that you are probably part of called The Binders, mm -hmm. which is for women and gender fluid people as a way to bring our voices more into the world because women still aren't getting as much coverage in like big, big magazines like New York times and stuff like that. And so we have this group to support each other and somebody interviewed Mackenzie Brady Watson somewhere along the line. And I kept her name for the next time I would be sending the round. And that's when I did it. So there's that. And then she helped me revise my book proposal yet again and suggested some rewrites and then we sent it out and I am just so thrilled that Harper Wave took it. They have treated me so well and I feel like my editor Karen Rinaldi who's also the publisher she just trusts the writer mm -hmm. and she understood what I wanted to do this book with this book and she didn't ask me to change it in any way that didn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like you got for, for people who are out there and if they got rejected by 10 agents, like take a break, keep working on the book and then pitch a bunch more and just keep going. Some books are harder to sell than others. This book, some people, I mean, I loved it when people were honest. One was like, I just, I'm not really into your voice. It's like, okay, you know, <laughs> he, because he can't sell my book if he doesn't love it. 
Yeah. And, and another person was like, I love this, but I just can't picture how I would sell it. Like, she didn't know. <laughs> Interesting. But Mackenzie did. Yeah. Yeah, I love uh, that advice is so helpful all around. Like, I just, it's so important. And I know I don't cover it as much on this show as, as maybe listeners would appreciate me doing. So I really, I'm glad that we were able to look at that a little more closely. Why don't you read from the section called Elephant? Because I think this is a really great taste of the braidedness of your book. Okay. Could it be that the chronic fatigue was for me, as Henry had said neurasthenia was for Alice, quote, the only solution for the practical problem of life? In 1989, just two months before the first adumbrations of fatigue came creeping into my life, researcher Stephen Strauss of NIH published Psychiatric Diagnoses in Patients Who Have Chronic Fatigue Syndrome in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Strauss, who opened all of his med school lectures about CFS with the same slide, a woodcut of a Victorian woman reclining on a fainting couch, hand to her forehead, measured depression and other mental health symptoms in 28 hospitalized CFS patients and found that 21 of those studied had been or were currently affected by a psychiatric illness. A press release sent out by the NIH to 500 U.S. reporters and news outlets declared this rate of psychiatric illness greatly exceeds that reported for the general public. Headlines like chronic fatigue linked to psychiatric troubles ripped across newspapers across the country. A year later, the Mayo Clinic Family Health book informed its readers that emotional and psychological factors may play a role in CFS. Quote, in most cases, it added, there is no serious underlying disease causing it. The book was a bestseller. It seems true that what my mind could no longer hold together in silence, my body spoke. My mother had abandoned me long before she drove away that early morning in August when I was 11, and I bore up, not just on the outside, but on the inside, too. If I was grief-stricken or angry, I did not know it. Alice, too, had reason to be carrying around a host of buried emotions. Her gender marked her as a second-class citizen at home, just as she was in the outside world, and she wasn't entitled to speak the truth. She wasn't even entitled to know the truth. She, like many Victorian women, became powerless in the most literal of ways through her body's collapse. Both Alice and I, in order to get through life, had to disconnect our minds from our bodies and repress our emotional truths. Is it any wonder that we collapsed? Our histories, separated by more than a century, suggest that both neurasthenia and chronic fatigue syndrome are psychosomatic ailments of the divided self. In order to survive, we learn to live in our heads. That, it turns out, is not a good idea because what's held captive in your head must eventually express itself through your body. I understood Alice, and although she was long gone, I felt understood by her, and it was more than our illnesses that twinned us. Both of us specialized in what psychologists call isolation of affect. I hadn't realized how early or how thoroughly I had disconnected my emotions. Maybe that was what made me sick. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, you know, I'm, there's so much I want to ask about this, but it's basically a, a question about trauma, which is, and you can answer this however you like, you know, what have you come to understand about your own early trauma that maybe you didn't understand before you wrote the book? And 
maybe what do you hope other trauma survivors will learn from your experience? Well, I would like to tie that question into what I just read because I think it's really because people who have MECFS, including me, are hypersensitive to being psychologized and having that be the answer to why we got sick. Mm -hmm. And so part of why I wrote this passage and some of the others that I think came before it was to, well, I am interested in, I'm a therapist, I'm interested mm -hmm. in like the metaphors in within illness. But what I wanted to do was sort of set all that up and then show all the biological research that we have about what is actually happening in the body of people with MECFS. And so I feel like that's a really important thing to say. Um, but then I can add on to that, that one of the things that I learned in the process of my research is, and also in the process of being a therapist, uh, many people might have heard of, about this by now, but there have been several studies that are now called ACE studies or ACE papers, mm -hmm. and ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And what's interesting is like how simple it is that basically the researchers developed a 10 point questionnaire that covered the kinds of traumas that uh, basically accumulate biologically in the body and can ultimately contribute to people developing health problems. And so just it, so what it doesn't mean is you had a trauma, therefore you're psychologically affected and you're therefore pretending that you're sick to get attention or something like that. What it means is that we, when children are affected by neglect and domestic violence or physical, emotional, verbal, or sexual abuse, or the physical or emotional absence of a parent due to death, divorce, prison, or substance use disorder, or mental illness, each of those is, um, counts as a one on this ACE questionnaire of 10 questions. And basically, the more uh, yeses you have on that questionnaire, the, the higher your risk of cancer, autoimmune diseases, MECFS, depression. And so what the, in the, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics um, released a landmark statement in 2012 warning that the toxic stress that children sometimes deal with can leave a last, this is a quote, can leave a lasting signature on the genetic predispositions that affect emerging brain architecture and long-term health. Mm -hmm. So we all have genes, but we also have epigenetics. Epigenetics include our, our, the culture surrounding us and our own experiences, including trauma. And our epigenetics it, it can change our gene expression. Yes. And that's what can create problems for putting people at higher risk for developing illness. It's interesting. When I first heard about epigenetics, the first person I ever interviewed about it uh, was for a different podcast I had, and I had never heard it. I thought it was maybe just sort of a little bespoke term. I had no idea that it had actual, like, research behind it and now it's becoming more and more accepted so like so much that we learn as we grow and evolve and hopefully shed some light in areas that hadn't been before this can become more accepted and maybe you know integrated into the way we care for people but of course it's always a very hard topic because you can't go back in time right like we can't go back in time and take away the aces for people but right. 
you know, that would be the best thing to do if we could just prevent all the harm that comes to people as they're growing. Yes. I mean, that's something that I think about quite a lot. And it's it's in a lot of the work I read and, and what I try to create in the world. But I think, uh, you know, knowing what someone is is potentially looking at in later life because of what they experienced might help us take better care of ourselves, maybe. Yeah, I feel like there's there's two pieces. One, it's like, I think in American culture, and I don't know how much, I don't know how much this happens in other cultures, but I suspect that we especially do it in the US, is like when you get sick, it's your fault because you weren't doing something right. Because we mm. are such a can-do nation, which mm-hmm, is a wonderful mm-hmm. quality to have, except it's hard for us to understand the dark side, the underside, which is we can't actually fix everything. And there is a level of mystery that we actually need to honor. And I find it helpful to think, oh, it's not my fault. Like, I, you know, I have, I actually, you know, appear to have a genetic predisposition that my doc that's in the book, that I do have some ACEs, but that doesn't mean I'm completely powerless and I can, there, or anybody who has a number of ACEs, there are lots of things that people can do that can help basically to try to rewire your brain and calm your whole system down. And yes, ultimately, we, I, I just, I want us to change the culture so that uh, children can be safer. Mm-hmm. And this also dovetails with that um, excerpt. If, if you have the time, I would love you to read that very last excerpt, which is about the, the effect on women over men. Oh, yes. Which is, you know, because the book is, your book is so comprehensive and you spend time on the ways in which women have been hurt by medicine and the patriarchy. I mean, that is really profound. And so this passage sort of speaks to that. MECFS does strike more women than men, as many as two to four times more, which might explain why the illness has been trivialized. It's well documented that women's concerns are, are more often dismissed in the doctor's office. To cite just one example, a 2006 study showed that when doctors were asked to evaluate two hypothetical cases, one man and one woman, each with symptoms of coronary heart disease, They gave an accurate diagnosis to both genders unless stress was also added as a factor. Suddenly, even though both individuals were suffering from identical symptoms, doctors identified heart disease in 41% fewer women than men. In other words, if women admit to being stressed, doctors become more dismissive of their symptoms, while men's symptoms are perceived as organic whether stresses are present or not. If it's that hard for women with symptoms of heart disease to be taken seriously, it's not much of a leap to see why women with ME-CFS are so often sent by their doctors to psychiatrists. Hmm. Thank you. So uh, my takeaway was, or one of my takeaways was that it will fall on women to advocate for better care for themselves. Um, yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Like, like, because we have all the time. <laughs> we have all that extra time. <laughs> we actually have less leisure time than men, according to of the course, research of course. that I found that's in the book. <laughs> yeah. You know, what would you recommend? I mean, do you have recommendations for what women can do first and foremost yeah. to protect themselves? First and foremost, if you have a doctor who makes you uncomfortable in the very first session, find another doctor. However, mm-hmm. um, I say that and then I think um, I live in a city and 
I mean, we're in a different time now with post-COVID and fewer doctors. And people who live in the country have fewer choices too. So if you can at all, find a different doctor. Basically for me, I mean, I basically, I describe what I have as some medical trauma around the way that I was treated by that doctor when I was at my most vulnerable, mm-hmm. when I most needed somebody to basically hold my hand and say, let's, let's try to, I don't know what's happening. I'm going to try to work with you. We're going to work together and try to figure something out so you can try to help you feel better. Like that mm-hmm. was the message I needed. Um, the other thing that I do, I am so careful now about providers. So I ask trusted friends for names. I might post on Facebook mm-hmm. and ask for names and do a little bit of research. And um, that works well. I have randomly had to like find a new dentist and um, psychiatrist and I really scored. So <laughs> you can randomly um, find those people. And But the other thing that I think is really important, if you can bear to do it, and that is, I think we need to be writing more letters to the doctors who harm us and or to their bosses and or to their licensing boards. Because uh, what we, I think what most often we do when we feel dismissed by doctors is leave. Mm-hmm. And they never think about it again Mm -hmm. they don't it doesn't even they don't even know it's like we need to educate doctors about how their behavior is impacting us Hmm. and i would recommend doing that with some diplomacy in because you're more likely to be heard but if you have to just let out all your anger i mean and you can do that in a nonviolent way that like in the written word Maybe that's also, that's also, I think that can also be a valid way to um, get a message across. I'll, I will say that I had, um, I recently had a hip problem and I had physical therapists. I went to an osteopath, sports medicine doctor and a surgeon. And they were all like, we, I tried, I tried everything. And um, it seemed they were all great. They were all respectful. It seemed like I was having more pain than would make sense for what they could see on the x-ray. Ultimately, I got a new set of orthotics, which changed. I wear orthotics, but they, they were old because they, mm-hmm. I had to pay for them out of pocket and I couldn't afford it. I got the new orthotics and the hip pain went away almost immediately. Wow. And I thought, I need to tell these doctors, not because I want to chastise them, they don't deserve that, but because I want to let them know there's this other option to keep in mind for future patients. And I did email mm-hmm. both the sports medicine doc and the surgeon, and they both, and I respectfully did, mm-hmm. and they both thanked me, like for giving them one more piece of information. Yes. I also right. emailed my insurance company and told them they spent thousands of dollars treating me, <laughs> and if they had just paid for my orthotics, they wouldn't have had to pay for anything else. But that didn't go very far. Well, but you know what? Like you just taught me, right? Okay, so this is very important because you're you're helping them build their their body of knowledge about what works, what doesn't work, what what might be yeah. not worth pursuing. But I'm also noticing how much extra time you spent to do that. Now, I yes. that's more of that labor for you. Yes. Now, 
ultimately, you know, this is sort of your field. This is your jam, you know, for better or worse, this yeah. is what you do. So it may not be so difficult for you, although I'm sure you'd rather be doing other things like even sipping a cup of tea or something. But, but I mean, you know, it's hard, right? It's like, it's so much work. Like what you're basically illustrating is how much work it is to get better care. You're totally right. And I'm glad you brought that up. When I finished writing to a certain point in the book, I knew that the next part I was going to have to write was like the hopeful part. And I was like, <laughs> I can't, I don't, I don't even see any. But reading um, Rebecca, Solnit's, Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark really helped me get a sort of new uh, way to look at things that made me much more hopeful about how change works. It doesn't work in a linear way, just like my book isn't linear. It's like there's a, there's a quiet buildup and it may go up and down, up and down. And then something big happens. And like one, one thing I think is like Black Lives Matter, although that's obviously still an ongoing fight, some big things happened in response to that and are still mm -hmm. happening in response to that moment. And what I ask people to do in the book, and it's, it's a hard ask because I know we're all tired. We're basically all tired by, the gr by this, this grind culture and by capitalism. But... Um, but we're not going to get out of it if we don't do anything to make it change. And if we work together to make it change, we can create groundswells that can help change happen. And so if a bunch of women, and by the way, it's not just women who are disrespected by men. Mm -hmm. Like, let's think about people of color. Mm -hmm. let's, let's think about trans people. And even men who have MECFS or, or uh, long COVID, I'm sure there are men that can tell you about being dismissed by doctors and treated poorly. So if all of us um, join together in finding ways to speak out, we can change the culture. And so I basically ask people to, to, to try to do like, is it possible to do like just this much more? Figure out if there's something doable. And for some people that might, it really might not be just because of culturally where we're at and how much they're having to work and parent and all those things. But for some of us, we can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And I feel like, you know, when we have a little extra room, you know, on our plates or when we have that extra energy, then we can do a little bit more. So hopefully when we don't, maybe other people can do it. And you know what yes. I mean? It's sort of like that give and take of like, what can you put back? And when you can't put back, don't worry, because hopefully somebody else will do it for you for that time. Yeah, that's um, like maybe. reciprocity or yeah, paying yeah. it forward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. So what are some of your favorite memoirs or books of essays you'd like to recommend? So I, I just a couple months ago read um, Easy Beauty by Chloe Cooper Jones, who has a visible physical disability and intertwines it with philosophy, her story, and it's just brilliant and completely compelling. The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey is a wonderful memoir. It's been around for a while. The Two Kinds of Decay by Sarah Mangusa is another uh, illness memoir that's beautiful. And I loved and incorporated some of Sarah Ramey's The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness into my book. She, she helped me think of some things in a new way. Eula Biss, Notes from No Man's Land. Sophia Ali Khan, A Good Country, My Life in Twelve Towns and the Devastating Battle for a White America, helped me understand in an embodied way the impacts, how systemic racism is and she just does an amazing job with that and then barbara ehrenreich's nickel and dimed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. I'll put those in the show notes so people can um, find them. And then my last question for you, a piece of advice you'd like to leave memoirists with and or how memoirists can mitigate or hope to mitigate a little bit of the effect on their bodies and and minds when, you know, the effect of writing trauma. How, How can we, you know, deal with that? Well, the trauma one I think about because I I know I've I know of people who are working on memoirs about trauma and it's really hard. I mean, it can cause flashbacks. It could put you right back in this awful thing that you finally got out of. And um, so, in those cases, I think it's really important to have a therapist just to help you process the stuff. And EMDR therapy can be particularly helpful for trauma. And and also doing things like having other things like let giving yourself permission to get up and walk away from it when it's getting too hard and um, go do something beautiful or write something beautiful, write a poem about something beautiful and mindfulness. And I really think that those memoirs are needed and there's a lot of societal pushback against memoir still, even though it's quite a popular genre at this point Um, and especially women's memoir. And I just want to say that your stories are important and our stories, even if they don't incorporate a lot of research the way mine does, they impact the culture and they impact people individually. And those people can then go ahead and impact the culture too. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And lastly, London, where can people find you, order your book, all that? Well, if they Google me, they should be, my hope, hopefully my website will come up on the first page. And there's a whole uh, p- page about the book uh, with blurbs and you can click on tabs to buy the book from various places. But it's available, it's f- available everywhere. If it's not at b- your bookstore, you can ask them to order it and they will. I am also on Facebook and then my Instagram is it called an Instagram handle? I'm just I've never been. Yes. Fa- Facebook is my place. Well, that's but great. I mean, you know, we all have the places where we spend more time, and yeah, it makes sense, right? I mean, yeah. that's where you found your people. That's where I found my people, and it's like yeah. a, it's like a place for story. But I like Instagram, and so my handle is J Lee London J L E E L U N D E N. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I learned a lot. And I know there's even more to learn from you and I hope that keep on doing the work you do and thank you for spending all this time on creating this beautiful book. Thank you Ronit and it's just been a pleasure to be able to get into more depth about the book and it's been a pleasure to talk to you so thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.